Good morning. Those of you who don't know me, uh, I'm, my name is Wayne Bobbitt, and I have the privilege this morning to read from the Word of God. And uh, if you please stand with me, uh, we're going to be reading from Matthew uh, chapter 16, verses 13 through 23. Now, when Jesus came into the district of Caesarea Philippi, he asked his disciples, who do people say that the Son of Man is? And they said, some say John the Baptist, and others say Elijah, and others Jeremiah or one of the prophets. He said to them, but who do you say that I am? Simon Peter replied, you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. And Jesus answered him, blessed are you, Simon Barjona, for flesh and blood has not revealed this to you, but my Father who is in heaven. And I tell you, you are Peter, and on this rock I will build my church, and the gates of hell shall not prevail against it. I will give you the keys of the kingdom of heaven, and whatever you bind on earth shall be bound in heaven, and whatever you lose on earth shall be loosed in heaven. Then he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and the chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. And Peter took him aside and began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. But he turned and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me, for you are not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. This is the word of the Lord. Amen. You be seated, please. All right. Um, this morning, as we, as we get into the scripture, we are going to be here again in Matthew 16. I know, hard to believe, right? Um, but I've, I've noticed a, a bumper sticker on, in, in town that I've seen, and it's a bumper sticker that says, Lions, Not Sheep. Have you seen that one? Um, and it's, I, I looked it up, and it's actually a clothing company. It's an apparel company uh, that puts forth this, this, this uh, that's, the, that's the name of their company, um, but it's this kind of tag, and their, their idea is like you get to choose who you are, and the question is, are you, are you going to be a predator or are you going to be prey, right? Are you going to be strong or are you going to be weak? Are you going to lead or are you going to follow? And you get to choose who you're going to be, which is you know, a question for all of us. Who are we going to be? Are we going to be strong? Are we going to be weak? What are we going to be? What kind of life are we going to live? And what that got me thinking, that, that phrase just got me, it got me thinking about the Bible for one thing, uh, but then it it got me thinking about the culture that we live in as a culture where winning is a big deal, right? Strength, strength is a big deal. Courage is a big deal. Strength and power are key. We don't want to be weak, right? Does anybody out there just want to be weak all the time? Not really. We don't want to seem weak. We don't want to look weak. Um, strength and power are key. We don't want to be people who, f who mindlessly follow the crowd and just kind of do what everyone else is doing or do what we're told. We don't want to be losers, right? We want to be lions, not sheep, right? If I said, okay, anybody who wants to be lions, get on this side of the, of the congregation. Everybody who wants to be a sheep, be over here. Um, we we kind of know how, it, how it, we would go, right? 
But even as Christians, we follow a Savior who is called, what, the Lion, right, of the tribe of Judah. And can you think of a more powerful image than a lion? Can you, can you think of more, a more powerful picture uh, in, in the animal kingdom especially than of a lion? Probably not. Maybe an orca, my daughter Daisy would argue. They, they could probably beat a lion because they can eat sharks. Anyway, so it's an interesting tidbit. But, but when we think of, of Jesus as the lion of the tribe of Judah, we, we get that imagery from the book of Revelation, and specifically Revelation chapter 5. And here's the picture in Revelation chapter 5. There's a, it's a picture of heaven, and there's the elders, and there's the, you know, the angels flying around in heaven, and there's all sorts of, there's the throne and all these things, and, and angels, mighty angel. And there's a scroll that needs to be opened. And it's this, this kind of scroll of history that needs to be opened, and yet it has seven seals on it. And this angel asks, who is worthy to open this scroll? Who can actually undo these seals to open it? And they couldn't find anybody. And so the apostle John, who's seeing this, actually starts weeping. He's weeping because nobody's worthy to open up the scrolls. And he weeps loudly. And then one of the elders tells him to stop and says, weep no more. Behold, guess what? The lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has conquered. And he can open the scroll. He can open the seven seals. And then this lion of the tribe of Judah shows up. And guess what he looks like? He shows up and next to the throne... And the four living creatures and among the elders, John says, I saw a lamb standing as if it had been slain. So we're talking a lamb with blood all over it, a cutthroat, standing there. That's the lion. That's the picture of power and strength that the scripture gives us. Jesus, the Lion of Judah, didn't conquer through overwhelming force, but how did he conquer? He conquered through humble sacrifice. And until we can get our American minds around this seeming contradiction, we will not understand who Jesus is. So we begin today's text in verse 20 with what seems like a paradoxical command from Jesus. So, He's just had this conversation with his guys. They've, Peter said, you're the Messiah. Realizing who he is, this is who Jesus is, the Messiah, the Son of God. And then, then Jesus turns to them. He says, strictly he strictly charged the disciples to tell no one that he was the Christ. See, Jesus, Jesus has just asked his disciples, who do, who's everybody say I am? And, and there's all these conflicting opinions. And he says, who do you say I am? And Peter, with, with divinely inspired insight, confesses that Jesus is the Jewish Messiah, that he is the Son of God. He's the rightful king. He's the one who's come to usher in God's kingdom on earth. And, and Jesus hears this from Peter and immediately applauds him. Yes, Peter, you're right. But you didn't figure this out on your own. My father showed you. And guess what, Peter? You're the rock. And on this rock, I'm going to build my church. The gates of hell, the gates of Hades, of death will never stand against it. I'm going to give you the keys of the kingdom. You are the man. It's like, high five, Peter. Pat on the back. You just got a promotion. Then he immediately tells Peter, he tells the other disciples, okay, this information that you have, keep it to yourselves. Shh. Don't tell anybody. But why would Jesus do that? 
Doesn't he want people to know who he is? I mean, these people are confused. Some think he's Elijah. Some think he's a, a prophet. Some think he's John the Baptist come back from the dead. Wouldn't it be better for them to go out and say, hey, here's who he is. He's the Messiah. He's the one we've all been waiting for, the, the one we've been looking for. Why wouldn't Jesus want this good news proclaimed? Why wouldn't he want the, the crowds to have some clarity on who he is instead of being confused? And, and what we'll see in the coming verses actually answers this question, and it really sets us up for the rest of the Gospel of Matthew. Because it's taken the disciples this long. It's taken them, we don't know how long, but a, a long time, at least 13 chapters, to realize and understand who Jesus is. And it will take them the rest of the Gospel of Matthew to learn why Jesus came. Because even though, even though Peter's confessed Jesus to be the Messiah, to be the Christ, to be the King, it becomes clear in these next couple of verses that, that Peter is equally confident in his confusion as he is in his clarity. He's equally confident when he gets it wrong as he is when he gets it right. Peter has mu as much to learn about what it means, uh, he has much to learn about what it means that Jesus is the Christ. And Jesus knows that if his disciples were to go out and broadcast this information, that the results would actually be disastrous. The only thing that would be stirred up would be these people's messianic expectations, a focus on restoring Israel to its proper place. Because Peter and the disciples don't yet understand who Jesus is, and they understand who he is, they don't understand what that means. Their premature declaration of his identity would likely devolve into little more than a make Israel great again rally. The people, like in John 6, the people would come and they would attempt to make him king. And all because the disciples did not yet understand that Jesus intended to usher in the kingdom not through unadulterated power, but through unprecedented suffering. Jesus is about to completely take everything they believe about the job description of the Messiah and turn it on its head. Right? He's going to ask them, okay, everything you believe, I'm going to ask you to forget everything you've ever been known, ever known, everything you've ever been taught about the Messiah, that, that he will be a, a powerful king who will come in mighty military strength, that, that he'll lead God's people in victory against the Romans, he'll establish them again in their, in their promised land, he'll bring God's kingdom on earth. Forget all that, throw it out, start over. Because for the last 13 chapters of this story, since these guys began following him back in chapter 4, Jesus has led his disciples on a journey to where they can come. they've come to recognize in verse 16 that he is the Christ, the Son of the living God. And now it's like he's enrolling them in a new course. Like the next stage of learning, right? You guys graduated from level 1, we're going to level up, and for the next 12 chapters, I'm going to teach you the role and the mission of the Messiah. And Jesus is going to do that through his actions. He's going to live it out in front of them, what it means for the Messiah to be the Messiah through his own suffering. So you can look at it this way. It's like a college course, right? Jesus 101. It's just recognize who Jesus is. What's his identity? Who's he claimed to be? Now they've entered into Jesus 201, recognizing his work, his mission, what he came to do. 
So he begins here in these verses to lay out for them probably some of the most difficult teachings in the world. Now, it's not difficult as in me trying to understand astrophysics or calculus. It's, it's a practical theology course, but the title of the course, this is one you wouldn't like look through your course book and go, ooh, I want to sign up for that one. It's called Suffering. And here's the course description, verse 21. From that time, Jesus began to show his disciples that he must go to Jerusalem and suffer many things from the elders and chief priests and scribes and be killed and on the third day be raised. So in this new curriculum that he's giving to his disciples, and, and Martin Luther, the, the famous reformer, he called this a theology of the cross. In this, this new curriculum, this new cross-centered curriculum, Jesus will show the disciples over and over again that his work must include his suffering. It must include his death. And that little word must in that verse, it can, it can be translated this way. It can be translated as it was necessary that he must go to Jerusalem. It is necessary. And the necessity implies that this is, this is the way that God has designed and planned it to be. The necessity of Jesus' suffering lies, we know, in God's revelation, in his word. So this is necessary because the Bible, God's word, the Old Testament has predicted it, particularly in passages like Isaiah chapter 53, which describes God's coming suffering servant. Surely, Isaiah writes, somewhere between 400 and 700 years before Jesus, this is what Isaiah wrote, Surely he took up our pain, and he bore our suffering. Yet we considered him punished by God, stricken by him, afflicted. But he was pierced for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The punishment that brought us peace was on him, and by his wounds we are healed. We all, like sheep, have gone astray. Each of us has turned to our own way, and the Lord has laid on him the iniquity of of us all. So according to Scripture, it's necessary that the Messiah, the suffering servant, suffer. But, but why did God have to make it this way? Why did God have to write that? Why did he have to put that in Scripture? Couldn't he have made, made a victorious warrior king like David, a conquering hero, a mighty victor to come back and make Israel great again? Well, I think we have to notice too and recognize that the the necessity of Jesus' suffering doesn't just lie in God's revelation, but it lies in God's character as well. Last week when I talked about God's kingdom, a couple weeks ago, excuse me, I mentioned that the kingdom of heaven is upside down. You take the world's kingdoms and you turn them upside down. That's the kingdom of heaven. The ways of God are not the ways of man. The things of God are not the things of man. The, the, world, the world's values and what God values are at odds, which often means the things that you and I value are definitely not the things that God values. You have to, we have to take that to heart for a minute. The ways that we think, the ways that we live are often not the ways of the kingdom. And Jesus points out this very thing at the end of verse 23. He says to Peter, you're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. And at the cross of Jesus Christ, God perfectly reveals the value of his kingdom, the values of his kingdom and of his ways. Theologian Carl, Carl Truman points, it, points out this way, quote, he says, the cross is not simply the point at which God atones for sin. It is also a profound revelation of who God is 
in how he acts toward his creation. It's not just something to take care of the sin problem and that's that. We had to do it, okay, and now we're good. It's God showing us who he is. If you want to know who God is, look to the cross. Because it's at the cross that we come to recognize that God's character, his power, and his love is revealed most perfectly in weakness. And in human eyes and ears, of course, this looks like foolishness. The Apostle Paul points this out in 1 Corinthians 1. He says, the foolishness of God, though, is wiser than men. And the weakness of God is stronger than men. If we want to know God most deeply, we must look to the cross. In that same book, 1 Corinthians chapter 2, Paul writes, I decided to know nothing when he was among the Corinthians with them, living with them and teaching them. He said, I decided to know nothing among you except Jesus Christ and him crucified. That was enough for Paul to know. Jesus will not become the king without first taking up his cross. The road to his kingdom is a road of suffering. And the Lion of Judah is in fact and first the Lamb who was slain. And if this all seems ridiculous to you, I guess my encouragement is that you're not alone. Because just as Jesus began to lay out this new cross-shaped curriculum for his disciples, I mean, he's barely through the syllabus in lesson one. His star pupil, Peter, stands up, interrupts the class, and takes the teacher out in the hall to talk with him. Verse 22, And Peter took him aside, began to rebuke him, saying, Far be it from you, Lord, this shall never happen to you. And I want to think that Peter's intentions in this little pep talk were noble, right? That, that he's, he's warm towards Jesus. He's protective of Jesus. He, he wants to encourage Jesus. And perhaps he's seeing in, in Jesus signs of overload and fatigue. Jesus is short on sleep. He gets up early every morning. He's working late at night. Maybe he's a, he's a bit depressed or melancholy. I see those bags under your eyes, Jesus. I know you're tired. I know you're not thinking straight. You're burning the candle on both ends. You're healing people. You're teaching all the time. Not only that, you've got all these powerful people who are opposing you, who don't like you. The grind of it all is wearing on you, Jesus. You're not thinking clearly. You're just down on yourself. So Peter, whom, whom remember Jesus had just called him the rock, he's like, well, I'm going to be Jesus' rock right now. I'm going to come alongside him. I'm going to encourage him. I'm going to hold him up. I'm going to give him a pep talk. And like many of us might go to a friend or a loved one who's down in the dumps, I'm just going to hold his arms up. And I'm not sure that it crossed Peter's mind that Jesus was actually serious. Because how could he be? How could God possibly allow his Messiah? How could he possibly allow his own son to suffer and to be killed? That doesn't make any sense. What does make sense is that suffering would be light years away from Jesus. And so he says, far be it from you, Lord. Get that away from you, Lord. That shouldn't be. Then he emphatically says, this shall absolutely never happen. It's like he says, it's impossible. Jesus, whatever you just said, your prediction, your prophecy, your words, whatever they are, I'm coming against them. I counter them. But what Peter, I think, is really saying 
is, I will never let this happen to you. Which sounds pretty noble. But Peter's noble intentions have turned into arrogance. A pride that actually thinks he knows better than Jesus. So Martin Luther, I mentioned before, the reformer of the 16th century, spoke of the gospel as the theology of the cross. He spoke of anything that opposed the gospel, anything that opposed the theology of the cross. He called it a theology of glory. And that's what Peter is stuck in right now, is, is what we call, he called a theology of glory. According to Jesus, this was the same as being concerned primarily with the things of man rather than the things of God. A theology of glory is man-centered. It makes everything that God is and does about us. It believes that God's main business is to deliver to me the good life. That Jesus loves me, and the Bible told me so, means that he'll provide everything I need and protect me from everything that's bad. The Messiah was supposed to bring victory, triumph, power, freedom. He's turning us from sheep into lions. So for Peter, being with Jesus was a pathway to glory. It wasn't a pathway to suffering. It's important for us to consider because, friends, we are immersed in a culture where we believe that our main job is to live the good life, to be fulfilled, to prosper, to have enough, to have it all, to be secure to say, and be safe, to experience personal and vocational and relational and sexual and emotional fulfillment. And when this culture of glory, this culture of self-fulfillment invades the church, when it, when it taints our discipleship, or when, it, when it affects the way that we follow Jesus, it means that we place all of those expectations for our personal fulfillment square on the shoulders of Jesus. We say, Jesus, do this for me. For some of us, that means give us political, cultural victory within our nation. Help our candidates to win. For the, for the majority of us, it means just simply every day habitually expecting Jesus to provide us with safety and comfort, with, with money and security and peace and prosperity. I mean, if God loves us, if he's pleased with us, why wouldn't he give us these things? And some of us have come to Jesus with these expectations in hand. Following Jesus then means that, that he will make my life better. He will fix my problems. He'll provide the things I lack. He'll take away the things I don't like. And like Peter, we, we become displeased, upset with the way Jesus is doing things. And we want to correct him until things start to go our way. This is a theology of glory. And the result of it is setting our minds on the things of man. But unfortunately, when we do this, Jesus is pretty blunt in pointing out that we actually become satanic. But he turned in verse 23 and said to Peter, Get behind me, Satan. You are a hindrance to me. You're not setting your mind on the things of God, but on the things of man. 
So the same man whom Jesus had just called the rock, he now calls two pretty severe names. And the first is Satan, which is literally adversary or opponent. And it can simply mean that, adversary or opponent. However, it's also a title for the evil spiritual being that we often call the devil or the, the evil one. We met him back in Matthew chapter 4 where he was called the tempter. And he came to Jesus and tempted him in the wilderness. Now, I think it would be a stretch to assume that Peter was somehow possessed by Satan in this moment, and that's who Jesus was talking to. It's possible that Satan was influencing him, but more likely, what's happening is that Peter is simply acting the part of Satan. He's acting as an adversary, as, a, as an opponent, even as a tempter to Jesus in much the same way that Satan acted in Matthew chapter 4. D.A. Carson, a, a New Testament scholar, writes that, quote, Satan offered Jesus kingship without suffering. You remember that last temptation? Jesus, all the kingdoms of the world can be yours. All you have to do, you don't have to suffer you don't have to walk this road. All you have to do is bow down and worship to me, worship me, and they can be yours. And that is the exact same thing that Peter has in mind here. Jesus, you can be king without suffering. Jesus rebuked the tempter in chapter 4. He said, be gone, Satan. And now he says almost the exact same thing to Peter here. Get behind me, Satan. You are opposing my mission. You're opposing the reason I came. And how quickly he went from a rock to a Satan. And how quickly we can go from siding to, with God to siding with Satan. The second thing that Jesus calls Peter, he calls him Satan, and then he calls him a stumbling block. He says, you are a hindrance. The word there, scandalon, literally means a stumbling block to me. You are, you are an obstacle in my way. So ironically here, he just called him a rock upon which Jesus will build his church. Now that rock is placing himself right in front of Jesus and becoming a stumbling block, an obstacle to trip over. To Peter, though, a suffering Messiah was an obstacle as he would always be to the Jews. Again, 1 Corinthians 1, Paul says, Christ crucified is a stumbling block, a hindrance, a scandal to Jews. But when Peter stands in the way of Jesus' suffering, when he says, no, you can't suffer and be the Messiah, he becomes a stumbling block to the gospel. A theology of glory, a theology of the cross cannot coexist. So Jesus actually, it's interesting, he repents. The verse says that Jesus literally turned around. I, I, I try to picture this conversation like, is it like Peter grabbing him and, and Jesus kind of walking away and then when he hears this, he turns around to Peter? Or is it more, this is kind of what I think it is, Peter's up in his grill, getting in his face, you can't do this, I'm rebuking you, no way I'm going to let this happen. And Jesus actually turns around and physically places Peter behind him. It says, get behind me, Satan. In other words, Peter, get back to your rightful place as a disciple. What is a disciple? A follower. Where do followers go? Behind the master. Following the master, not in front of the master. Jesus doesn't need 
Peter's protection. He doesn't need Peter's rebuke. He doesn't need Peter's guidance. And Peter must learn, just like we must learn, our proper place with Jesus is in humility and in submission behind Jesus rather than in front of him. And we will explore the implications of this next week because Jesus is going to go right into it for us. Here's what it means to follow me. So what can we take away this morning? Just I want to give you three words and then we'll go to the table. The first word is humility. I think Peter had it exactly right in verse 16. You are the Messiah. You're the Christ, the Son of the living God. He had it exactly wrong in verse 22. There's no way you will suffer, Jesus. What is that, six verses? How long does it take us to go from being right on to right off? Not very long, which should drive us all to a place of humility. It's important for us to realize that if we think we've got it figured out, we probably don't. And in walking with Jesus and following Jesus, our proper posture is to major in and seek to grow in humility. Jesus, what are you teaching me today? Jesus, what do you want me to know? Jesus, take me off the throne and you have the throne. Let's humble ourselves before a suffering Christ. The second word I give you is the word submission. So in what areas of life do you think you know better than Jesus? And we're all, we're all going to say none of them, but there are places where we think we have it dialed down and we haven't let Jesus touch that place in our life. Maybe it's your finances, maybe it's your time, maybe it's your relationships, maybe it's your job, I don't know. Some of us are confused by the suffering that we're going through or that we've gone through in the past. Or maybe you're angry with God because life hasn't worked out the way you wanted it to. There may be places in your life, honestly, where you may never understand what God is doing or has done. And God is simply calling you to trust. He's simply calling you to follow And if it's in suffering, he's not leaving you there alone. He's been there. I mean, what would it like to have a Savior who had never suffered when we live in a world full of suffering? He wouldn't have any idea what we were going through. He knows. Can we walk with him? Can we quit telling him how to do his job and trust that he knows what he's doing and submit to what he has for us? The final word I have for you this morning is simply gospel. We carry a message, and and Rob was speaking about this earlier. Would you pray for somebody that you want to share with, the gospel with this week? We, We carry a gospel message that when you put it in front of the world, it seems really foolish. It seems really weird, out of touch. And because it seems weak, it seems foolish, it seems irrelevant, we we often are tempted to change it, to make it more palatable so that people will believe. But, but let me urge you that as you, considered, as you consider a gospel centered on the cross, the suffering of Jesus Christ, not to be ashamed of its seeming folly and not, quick, not be quick to change it because it's offensive. The gospel is beautiful, not because it makes sense to human minds, The gospel is beautiful because it is the pristine picture of God's character and his love for us in Christ. 
in all of his suffering love, in all of Christ's sacrificial joy, our job is to believe that foolish gospel and to proclaim it as fools. So as we come to the table today, we proclaim that gospel just as Jesus said. We proclaim it as as long as we take this meal. We remember his broken body and his spilt blood on our behalf. We take it and we proclaim it until he comes. So this morning I'm going to invite you while there's some music playing to come and partake. Come by yourself or come with others. Feel free to spend time at the table as you take that bread that reminds us of the body of Christ, the very human body that died, that suffered on a cross for your sake and for mine. To take on our sins, the, the, the blood that was poured out to cover our sins and buy us, purchase for us forgiveness and reconciliation with our Heavenly Father. If you're a follower of Jesus, I invite you to come and be part of this. Let's pray. Father, as we come this morning, we are hopefully stirred up a little bit to consider your suffering. To consider that you, the Lion of Judah, stood, stand in heaven as the Lamb who was slain. As John the Baptist said, for the, for the sins of the world, for my sin and for everyone's sin in this room, Lord. And we look to Jesus, the Lamb of God. We look to Jesus, our Savior. We look to Jesus, our Messiah, the suffering servant. And Lord, may our hearts be broken and may they be filled. May they be broken in that we come humbly before you, realizing that we are the ones who put you on the cross. It's due to our sin, both inherited and chosen, that you had to hang there and suffer, die, and experience the wrath of God on our behalf. And yet we look to you in complete joy because we know that for the joy set before you, you, Jesus, endured the cross, you scorned its shame, and you now sit in glory at the right hand of the throne of God. And so we look, Jesus, to that day when you will come again, we will see you again, and you will set all things right. And until then, Lord, may we take this gospel, may we be humble, submissive, suffering servants of yours in this world, proclaiming the foolishness of the gospel to a world that needs so desperately to know it. Fill us with your spirit and send us from here with that message. Pray this in your name. Amen.